I'm going to start today with a uh, quick reading um, from Acts. You know how one of my objectives was I wanted to help tie in as much of the Old Testament with the New Testament as I could as we walked our way through Israel's story. And so a quick reading here. You don't have to turn to it from Acts 7, 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for four, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is Moses, who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who in the congregation, in the wilderness with the angel, who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. In their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idols who were, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. So, we finished Exodus last week, which gets us, those of you who are counting, to Leviticus. We are trying to move basically chronologically through this narrative as much as we can. So this gets us to Leviticus, and when we finish today, the Israelites will be within, will be close to the land of Canaan. So we start off, Leviticus is is challenging in some ways because it is a book that is very, it's obviously very heavy on law and light on narrative. However, I think even as we move through it at some pace, there are a few um, things we can mine from it that might be helpful or useful or just interesting. So, as we pick up here, God speaks to Moses from the tent of meeting. Also, the tent of meeting, if I haven't mentioned this before, is um, tabernacle, tent of meeting. Um, You'll hear it called both those things, so I don't want to be confusing. I'll refer to it as both. So, Moses is given further instructions concerning offerings. The priests are to oversee and administer the administer these offerings, these burnt offerings. And there's, and there's three kinds here that we see that pop up. Quickly, we have a grain offering, and we have a peace offering, and a sin offering. But we need these offerings, and they're for atonement from sin. So a quick question, just as, as that I think it might be helpful to us, helpful to us, why must God punish sin? I mean, we spoke, Lee brought up a really good question, the sight last week, the sight and the smell of these offerings, the, um, the, the spectacle of, of all this death. Um, why must God punish sin? Greg. Well, one, God is a just God, and he would uh, not be a just God if he let it go. Mm-hmm. And also, it's a reminder uh, to the people, uh, if, he, if they didn't have to do that, they would become more casual about uh, God's um, uh, holiness and their sinfulness. Yes. And, and also, clear on up to Jesus' day, it's going to make a greater impact 
to understand that Jesus put a, put a stop to all of that, the, the offering system that had taken place before, which was such a, a spectacle of, of uh, effort and, and um, sacrifice. I, I agree. I think that it showed, because God is a just God. If God, you know, just waved his hands and said, well, it doesn't really matter, he's, he's in a way undervaluing his own commandments. God is holy. He's perfect. That is the standard. And when God commands people to do something and they don't do it, they disobey, there must be justice done. And as, and as Greg mentioned, we are setting up for a new covenant, but it's okay for us to have in the back of our minds the things that had to be done in Israel's day to make um, amendments for these sins. And, and, and that is what they're for. It also lends solemnity to the sin. You know, it, it just shows that this was not a light thing. Um, yeah, it guards against a sort of casual approach to one's sin, something that we all still struggle with, being casual about our sin. This, you know, so I, I just think this is a, an interesting part of Israel's history. As uh, God gives Moses these um, new directives, we talk about a grain offering. We talk about a sin offering. And we talk about um, something that I think I, I just found kind of interesting, a peace offering that we're in Leviticus 3 now. Um, peace offerings are a little different than the offerings performed as propitiation for sin. The peace offerings were to be performed in thanksgiving upon payment of a vow or in goodwill. It was sort of a special, spontaneous offering that could be presented to God at any time. It wasn't part of the normal ritual. I think that's, I think that's really interesting. That's cool because we think about the um, Israel, we think about the law being so regimented, but even in that system, even with all these bloody sacrifices, God leaves room for the person who's just like, I just want to praise God today. I'm thankful. Something's good has happened. I want to approach God. And I think that shows us something really interesting about God's character that even back then, there was provision for people to just spontaneously worship and praise God, something that um, continues even into the New Testament. Anyway, we also see an interesting point here. The sin offerings is to be, are to be performed. This is a different kind of offering now. We talked about the peace offerings. The sin offerings are to be performed when the people commit sin unintentionally. The law is getting pretty weighty at this point. We were adding to it by the day, it seems. Moses is writing it down. What are the chances that people are going to unintentionally break parts of it? Pretty high. Um, so why did, you know, some, we sometimes talk about accidentally breaking the rules. Why does God's law have a provision for people to be like, oh, I, I didn't realize that I had just broken God's law. What do I do now? Well, there's a sacrifice for that. But why specifically would God put in a sacrifice for people that accidentally break the law or unintentionally or ignorantly, you know, why? Carrie? Um, so that people don't make the excuse or get into like a regular routine of being ignorant of the law. So like we still need to know the law, we still need to learn the law, and then if there is something that we're not covered for that we don't know, we can still atone for that for now, but then obviously the goal is to learn about it um, later on. 
I think that's true. I think that, that it may help fill in some of those gaps in people's knowledge. I think it also just shows how seriously God takes this law. You know, the law is, the law is massive. You know, it's becoming a very large book. Well, what if, you know, I, I didn't realize that, you know, this tiny little law here and I messed it up. Is that really a big deal? God says, yes. Yes, it is. It's a big deal. It's my law. I'm a just God. You've broken my law. And there's specific provision for you to um, make atonement for that. So even the unintentional sins, even the little bits of the law, um, we, we've spoke before about how we went, how we're getting more and more restrictive laws put in place, and we'll talk more about that here in a few minutes. But God makes provision for that. Also, this is just something that I found interesting. Um, it's it's scalable based on your uh, economy, meaning that if you can't. Um, you know, if the rich people can afford to sacrifice a bull, if you can't sacrifice a bull, you can sacrifice a sheep or a goat. And even the people who can't do that can sacrifice a pigeon or a turtle dove. So God does not um, discriminate against those who might not be able to afford the larger sacrifice. That is also part of the law. Even if you are of lesser means, you are still able to keep all of these commandments. So I thought that was interesting as well. So moving on. We're, oh, sorry. Yes. The unintentional sin, I think we also can go back to Genesis 5, where um, God gives the uh, analysis of man's heart, which is continuously wicked. And it, uh, I think Calvin said that the heart of man is a sin factory. I mean, we produce it constantly, even as being born again and regenerated. Mm -hmm. We still have that old nature that rises within us. And there are times that we sin. Um, You know, we can come out of church or just finish our praying or reading scripture and something upsets us or a thought comes across our mind, which is not godly. It, it's not that we planned it, but it's part of our nature. And God, under, he sees that. So he makes provision for it because he is merciful. Uh, yes. When he told when the Pharisees were um, questioning Jesus about the disciples um, breaking the law by rubbing some grains of corn in their hands. Um, they said, well, they're breaking the law. Well, he says, did, um, did, have you ever read what David did when he was hungry, went into the temple, yes. and which was only lawful for the priest to eat? And then Jesus tells him, you know, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now go learn and what go learn what this means. So I think that's that we can see the heart of God there yes. for us that we we are, um, you know, sinners and we we fall, but we're redeemed. And he makes that provision for us. Most certainly. I, I agree. The human heart is a factory of idols and. And the the wonderful thing about our loving God is that we can see then as now, he provides a way for that constant sin to be atoned for and and shows his mercy and his love in that way. So just glossing through a bit of the law here, we get to, um, as we get to Leviticus 8, um, Moses brings Aaron and his sons, he consecrates them, okay, it, it is a ceremony, um, takes several days. There's sacrifices involved. Um, they're anointed with oil. So we are now fully establishing the priesthood. It's going to function from now on. Aaron presents offerings at the tent of meeting or tabernacle. Blesses the people. The glory of the Lord appears. And a miraculous instance occurs here. Fire actually comes down and consumes the sacrifices. This is something we'll see happen a couple other times in the Old Testament. But upon the, the consecration of Aaron, we see this, you know, that they don't burn the sacrifices. They prepare the sacrifices, lay them out, and God's 
presence shows up in fire and consumes the sacrifices. Certainly miraculous, public display of God's power. And um, it's, it makes an impression on the people because it says the people fall on their faces. You know, this is, this is as if you needed more miraculous signs to show um, God's presence, to show that God is, or um, um, that this is God's plan, that this is what God wants. Um, and then something in the narrative rather strangely happens. Nadab and Abihu, famous names, two of Aaron's sons next take up censers. Do you guys know what a censer is? It holds incense. You see them sometimes today. We've got the ones that people swing, something like that. Okay. Um, they proceed, Nadab and Abihu, proceed to uh, lay incense on the censers and offer unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord. Fire comes out from before the Lord again, and this time consumes Nadab and Abihu, killing them on the spot. Well, this was a break from the program, certainly. We had just seen, you know, we had this consecration of priests. Um, we'd just seen the sacrifice, a miraculous appearance of God's power. And the next thing you know, Nadab and Abihu are dead, consumed by fire. Um, and I put a little quick note there. By the way, Nadab and Abihu were important people. Okay, They were named specifically among the, amongst the 70 elders of Israel who were allowed to partially ascend Mount Sinai when Moses went up to talk to God. And their father is going to become the high priest. These are well-connected people who had seen as much of God's glory as probably anyone aside from Moses. Okay, They, they had been there. They were insiders in a way. Um, and God struck them dead immediately because they offered unauthorized fire. So I put to you the question, why? I mean, surely it was sin. It was unauthorized fire. Why did God kill them instantly? And by the way, afterwards, has them carried out of the camp in their robes, like whatever's left of them is removed, like in the coast, like they're picked up and carried out of the camp. Possibly, yes. Yes. Why? Why? Why kill them publicly? Well, I think to, to stop the, the unauthorized nature of what they were, they were trying to do things and getting God to accept whatever we give you, never mind what you've asked for, we have decided to do this instead. Yes. And, and God is... And I'm sure God didn't do this every time this happened, but he's making a statement. He's uh, showing visibly to everybody that's there, no, that's not how we're going to do this. We're going to do it the way I said and and put a stop to uh, uh, you taking that into your own hands right away. I, I agree. I think that... Um the priestly class is eventually going to wield a great deal of power. They're going to be involved with a lot of laws and the keeping of those laws. Um, and we just see this contrast. When the sacrifice was prepared, God's fire down, comes down miraculously, consumes the sacrifice. When God's prescription concerning the law is not followed, the priests are consumed. And a very public sign. Um, for those of you who want to dig into this a little bit deeper, um, John MacArthur wrote a book called Strange Fire that, has a, um, th- that covers the incident in part. 
about Nadab and Abihu. And I'll read a quick section out of here for for you, just to sort of his thoughts on this unusual event. Most likely, Nadab and Abihu had taken fire from some source other than the brazen altar and used it to light their censers of incense. Remember that God himself set the altar ablaze with fire from heaven. Apparently, Nadab and Abihu had filled their censers with fire of their own making or coals from some fire in the camp of Israel. The actual source from which they obtained the fire is not recorded, nor is it important. The point is that they used something other than the fire that God himself had ignited. Their offense may seem trifling to someone accustomed to the type of casual worship our generation is known for. Still, what Scripture expressly condemns in this strange strange fire they offered is the crux of their sin. They were approaching God in a careless, self-willed, inappropriate manner without the reverence he deserved. They did not treat him as holy or exalt his name before the people. The Lord's response was swift and deadly. So we've talked about the importance of the law. We've talked about God's passion for his law. And just it's, it's a very interesting uh, public indictment of priests who do not keep to God's specific commandments. And we see that Aaron does not speak in response to this. His two eldest sons were just burnt, and Aaron says nothing. So it must have been quite a moment for Aaron. God next speaks to Aaron and gives him three imperatives. So we're talking about the priests here. Drink no strong alcohol when going into the tabernacle on pain of death. Next, distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And three, teach the people of Israel all the Lord's statutes. So we're, so we're defining the role of priests. And an important one, the, the last two especially, distinguishing between the holy and the unholy and teaching the people all of God's statutes. And from this incident, we move into various laws um, regarding the clean and the unclean. I won't go through all of them. Animals are categorized as clean and unclean. We talked about what the, the people can eat. And then there's a, um, we're in Leviticus 11 now. And for the first of two times in our narrative here, God is going to say something that I think is important. Leviticus 11:43. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourself with them and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. I think if there's anything that God is showing through this, it is certainly showing His holiness. And we're starting to draw a very distinct line between the holy and the unholy. And the priests will help um, show this between what is holy and what is separate and defiled. Moving on, as we have various, with, with further um, laws regarding the clean and unclean, laws, this is in, ex, this is in Leviticus um, 13, laws concerning leprosy are given. People with leprosy are unclean and cannot be touched or dwell among the rest of Israel. So why, why did I pick that one up? Well, I just, like I said, I really want you guys to connect this narrative with what's happening in the New Testament. So I'm going to read to you a very quick section from Matthew 8 concerning leprosy and concerning Jesus. 
This is speaking about Jesus. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So sometimes when we read this part, we're like, oh, the gift that, um, what are we talking about? We're going, this is, this is Exodus here. We're talking about after the healing, after someone had been healed of leprosy, bringing a gift to the priest. So Jesus is very well, very aware of this, and us being aware of it, and also being aware that they were not allowed to touch people who had leprosy. Leprosy, as we'll read in here with the law, the leprous people had to make themselves known. They had to stay away. So it, 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 it's good background information for us to have and makes it all the more shocking that Jesus would reach out and touch one. And um, so <clears throat> we also um, see institution of the Day of Atonement next. So once a year, Aaron can enter the holy place in the tabernacle to make atonement for the sins of Israel. There's a prescription for how that is to be done. And then we move on, and this kind of ties in a little bit with what happened to Nahab and Abihu, but it's, it's, it's a little bit narrative, so I wanted to stop and, and touch on this as well. In Leviticus 17, a strange, strange thing. Um, and I'll... It turns out that some people were offering unauthorized sacrifices, some of Israel, okay? So it wasn't just the priests at times who were playing it fast and loose with God's law. And I'm just going to start reading from you, reading, reading to you from Leviticus 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If Any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and the man shall be cut off off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offering to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. So, it turns out that some of the Israelites had been offering other kinds of unacceptable sacrifices. Sacrifices that weren't at the tabernacle. Sacrifices that weren't being presided over by priests. Sacrifices to goat demons. Um, some of you may have seen this before um, sometimes. Uh, Religious symbolism, satanic cults. You'll see the, the, the figure of a goat's head, you know, somewhat sometimes is used to represent Satan. It's a common motif. The Israelites, some of them, were sacrificing to goat demons outside the camp. 
it, is, it almost defies logic. Um, why would his people be sacrificing to goat demons and offering unauthorized sacrifices out in the desert? Can anyone, anyone want to tackle that one? Front row. It's odd, right? I mean, I'm not the only one who finds this strange after all these manifestations of God's power and all the minutiae of the law that people are out here outside the camp sacrificing this way. I guess my thought would be that they just came out of Egypt, a place, a land where there are many gods. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the gods have symbolism of like um, heads of animals and Mm -hmm. cats and dogs and things like that. And they were among a people who worshipped animals and many gods and had many different ways of worshiping different gods like for the air or the sea or the sun the moon things like that so they have god and they believe in Mm -hmm. god but then they are also worried oh it seems that there are other powers let's also appease them they don't see god as their only god or their one god or their true god they don't realize that that is the only power that they need, or they don't quite understand that or grasp that yet. That's excellent. Uh, the, the, world which, the world which they live in, the culture that they had just recently escaped, um, is it a polytheistic culture? Or we talked about, you know, um, back, back when we talked about Abram, the idea of henotheism, where you have like one large god and multiple other smaller gods. We talked about Aaron trying to symbolize Yahweh with a golden calf. And is we mentioned earlier the heart just being a factory of idols in general, but um, it is amazing that that um, the people are going down this road. Um, and remember, I said uh, a couple weeks ago that it's almost as though Israel is. We see the law growing. It's almost like as the people and the priests. Do, as they come up with new ways to be disobedient. God responds by codifying it into a law for them, okay? And you wouldn't think that there would have to be a specific provision in the law saying, don't sacrifice to goat demons in the desert. But God, in His mercy, think of it that way, the people are doing this, they're sinning against Him, He's going to provide a directive for them, okay? So as you see the law getting bigger and bigger, that's, that's, it is a function of the fact that the people are sinful, and, and this is, keeps being added by God to guide them. Question? Well, not a question, but a statement. I yes. think when we you know, look and see Israel's conception all the way up to the Babylonian captivity, I mean, it was one successive time of idol worship after another. They didn't learn that lesson until they came back from Babylon, because that's when you see them actually go and not um, establish, re, reestablish uh, um, idol worship after, they, after the post-exilic um, people came back. They, they, it took them a long time to learn that lesson. I mean, you, you yes. know, you're, you're almost talking uh, 1,400, 1,500 years of continuously God uh, disciplining them, telling them, warning them. I mean, we can see it in Jeremiah. You know, just you look at that, lamentations of the warning that's coming. Why? Because of the idol worship, because of their disobedience and following and whoring after other gods. And I think the same thing today um, when we look at the strange fire, um, you know, with this new anointing, speaking in tongues. Well, God gave those tongues for a sign to those who don't believe. 
And I believe that time has passed. I don't believe that's coming back because we have a completed whole scripture that we can follow. So when people say, well, you know, I, I, I want the second blessing. What do you mean the second blessing? Christ is the only blessing that you need. You know, the speaking in tongues and all these um, quote unquote supernatural uh, experiences that they say that they're having from the Holy Spirit is actually blasphemous because it's outside of scripture. It's not in scripture, it's outside. So Yeah, certainly people are always looking for that looking for that new thing um, or, or new new way to worship. Uh, that is a, a theme we see. Question back here. And just as a quick aside here, God makes it very clear that an unauthorized sacrifice, far from removing guilt, actually places guilt on that person. If you kill an animal and it's not an authorized sacrifice, you drag it out in the desert and, and do something unholy with it, you know, that is not God's. It doesn't take away or propitiate any of your guilt. It actually imputes blood guilt. So God's very clear about that as well. Yes. The question sort of going back to the sons of Aaron, yes. it, that might be why the people out in the desert weren't immediately struck dead because they were the people, but it shows how important the leadership is yes. to God, yes. uh, maybe. That's certainly true. And we certainly see um, after the incident, and again, we see the sin, and then we see God forgiving and providing laws to guide and sometimes punishing. The priests, Aaron is compromised, okay? We have the golden calf incident. Okay, now we have more rules about the priests. The people are sacrificing to idols still, some of them. And, and we'll see this moves into a, a, a further holiness code, okay? So, you know, the people sin, sometimes there's punishment involved, and then God provides them guidance so it not happen again. I think that's absolute, absolutely correct. Um, so, so following this, again in Leviticus 19, the Lord commands Israel to be holy, and then we move into a section of Leviticus um, where it talks a lot about holiness code, um, various laws covering loving neighbors, vows, religious feasts, sexual, sexual relations, the Sabbath year, and, and many others. Um, we certainly won't go through all of that because it's not narrative, and I want to keep us moving. But again, specific imperatives for the priests, commands for the people, um, and, and, and if you ever wondered why there's so many of them, it's because they kept finding ways to break them. So we get to, we move through Leviticus, we get to Numbers. Numbers, called Numbers, because twice in Numbers, um, there's a census of God's people. God commands Moses to take a census. Um, the way they count it is um, men, 20 years and older, who are able to basically function as soldiers. The total is a little over 600,000. I think this is really cool to just note God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. Remember how it wasn't that long ago we, <laughs> the nation was depending on one kid who hadn't been born yet, and mom was barren, and Abraham must have been wondered what in the world, how are we ever going to get to be a large nation? That at least has been thoroughly and completely accomplished by God's blessing. We're 600,000 men, so obviously, you know, the total number would have been much greater. Um, also, um, God gives, um, because we're going to be moving through the desert, um, picking up the tabernacle, packing it up, moving it, 
Um, there's a lot of uh, instructions given in this section about how that is to be done, and also even how the camp is to be arranged. On that little handout I gave you guys last week, the, the, the image, um, it's actually, the camp is actually um, organized by tribes. It, it, it is, it's not chaotic in that way, um, that there's, there's specific ways when they, when they move, certain people are responsible for carrying certain things, the camp is laid out in a certain way, um, so it, God providing further instructions, uh, very practical, pragmatic instructions for a people that um, have not yet reached the promised land. And then a huge event, two years, one month, and 12 days after leaving Egypt, the pillar of cloud lifts from over the tabernacle. So we've been at Mount Sinai for a long time. A lot of laws, many um, important occurrences um, that we should be aware of, but we, Israel was there for a long time. Paran, as best we can, um, if you picture the Sinai Peninsula, Paran, the wilderness of Paran is sort of to the northeast, so moving in the direction of Canaan, but not there yet. But that's where the, uh, the pillar of cloud lifts over the tabernacle and leads the people in that way. And in an organized fashion, they set out. But we're now in uh, Numbers chapter 10. After three days, the Israelites complain of their hardships. The, Lord's ang- the Lord is angry, and in his anger, he consumes with fire some of the outermost parts of the camp. Um, so it took three days after they left for the people to start complaining about things. Um, and God responds with fire. The people cry out to Moses. Moses prays to God, and the fire dies down. But the, pl- the complaining, unfortunately, um, does not stop. And I'm going to read to you guys a section from uh, Numbers 11, Numbers 11, 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. It didn't take very long for the complaining issue to raise its head again, um, and in a specific way, in a specific way. I mean, remember, we've been, it's been over two years since they were in Egypt. It wasn't like they left Egypt yesterday, okay? But now... And, you know, they're, they're looking back and saying, oh, man, you know, I know we've been out here watching God do miracles in the desert for two years, but, man, Egypt was great, you know, and the food was good. And talk about rose-colored glasses. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. You were slaves. You know, I, I, I just mean, like, we, <laughs> the human heart is certainly a factory of idols, but for goodness, you know, for goodness sakes, it, you were slaves. And you're complaining, um, apparently at this point, God was still providing manna for them. There's nothing at all to eat but this manna. The manna was what was free. God gave that to them. They didn't earn it. You know, so this whole like looking back on Egypt and being like, oh, back in the day was wonderful. And, and, and God, by the way, who had just burned up part of the camp of his people for complaining. And yet the complaining goes on. And this, um, 
this seems to have a profound effect on Moses. And this is the kind of the first point where we see Moses um, st- uh, seemingly being really affected by the grumbling of the people, that Moses himself, in a way, starts to grumble. Um, Verse 10, chapter 11, Moses heard the people weeping throughout the clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Now remember, God is angry because the people are whining and thinking about Egypt. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant, and why have I not found favor in your sight, that you lay the burden of all this, all this people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. So now this is a big change. Okay, now Moses is getting discouraged. Now Moses is starting to complain to the Lord. And here I think we really see God's mercy because instead of burning him with fire, as he might well have done, God, he provides helpers for Moses. Um, The Lord um, gives a portion of the spirit that is on Moses to 70 elders over the people so that Moses can have some help. Okay, so instead of, you know, punishing him severely as he might have, God actually has mercy on Moses. He gives him some more help, people to help officiate over the Israelites, help guide them. Um, But I think it is sufficient to say that God has heard enough about people who are concerned about the meat situation, people who didn't trust God's provision, people who complained about it. God is tired of hearing that. And here's why I say that. Verse 18, this is God speaking. And say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord saying, who will give us meat to eat? Remember Moses also said that. For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall eat not, you shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, why did we come out of Egypt? God has heard enough about people who want to eat meat. You want meat? I'll give you so much it'll make you sick. I will give you more than you can handle. I will give it to you until you despise it. Um, And that is, uh, you know, the danger of wanting something and wanting it so much and complaining about it. Um, sometimes when you get what you want, it doesn't you know, appear in that way that you were hoping. Um, so a wind from the Lord brings a massive glut of quail. There were so many quail around the camp that everyone who gathered them returned with at least 60 bushels. These birds are everywhere. We're in the desert. It's hot. This is what they get to eat for a month. Let your, you know, let your mind wander over that for a second. God has answered them well who complained about how he's providing for them and saying that you know, Egypt would have been better. Also, 
while the people were eating the quail, God struck them down with a great plague. Um, yeah, that's, I think from our perspective, um, looking back, it is, it is easy to, to see this and to see God's just punishment for a people who he has provided for so richly and who are still either don't, don't trust or are not thankful for what he gives them. But again, these words were written for our instruction, so there's the warning. How many days does it take us to start complaining? Me, myself. Sometimes I can do it in way less than three. So I think that's just a, it, it, again, don't, this is not a, a story written so that we can look back and beat up on the, the, the children of Israel and, and judge them from our New Testament perspective. This is written for our, for our benefit and for our warning. And despite all this, Israel journeys to the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and Moses sends men from each of the tribes into Canaan as spies to see where the land, see what the land is like and what people are dwelling there. So we've moved from the Sinai Peninsula, and remember we talked about Mount Sinai. Traditionally, Mount Sinai was in the south central region of um, excuse me, was in the south-central region of the Sinai Peninsula. Contemporary scholars, some of them think it was more in the central or north-central part of the Sinai Peninsula, but wherever it was, we're moving basically to the northeast. We move northeast till we come to Canaan. And when they know where Canaan is, because remember last week we talked about how God told them the boundaries of the land. They have a very specific idea of where they're going. They go there, and Moses sends in spies. You know, leaders among the people, representing each of the, um, of the tribes. And, um, and we're going to see next week what happens after that. But we have, we, have, we have left Sinai. We have the law now. Israel is now on foot. They're moving. They come to the, the very border of this land that God had promised to give them for generations. And here we stop. Um, And next week we'll see what the people's response and what God's response is. So we have just a couple minutes here. Any thoughts about today? Thoughts about, um, you know, the priesthood priesthood or the people or leaving Sinai, the laws, the sacrifices. We did cover a lot. I'm trying to trip along here so that we can keep moving. Um, Yes, Simeon. Just an observation. when we think sometimes on the Old Testament, we think like they're all church people mm-hmm. as the tribe of Israel, and yes. we have to remember that they're just like a people group. Yes. Like they're not all believers. They're not all like down for being taken out of Egypt necessarily. They're just like, oh, we got out of slavery, you know? Like some people are just following along because their family's leaving. Like it's a whole family culture, a tribal culture, a group culture. Yes. So some people who are doing this whole goat worship, they don't believe in the God that everyone else is following. So in part of this, I think maybe some of the burning off of the edges is maybe the people who don't actually believe this, who aren't actually accepting this as part of... Certainly possible. And that the, the, the bonds of Israel are in, are in large part ethnocentric. Okay. Yeah. And um, that makes it very different from, like, as you 
rightly pointed out from the New Testament church, where we're not brought together because we're all related. You know? So it's a different picture. And, and it doesn't say, when it talks about God consuming with fire the edges of the camp, there's not a lot of detail there, but sufficient to say, you know, that part of the camp was burning and that, you know, the pe- it's bad enough the people are, t- are, you know, yelling out to Moses, basically saying, talk to God, make him stop. Um, but we certainly see this is a moment when God's wrath is being poured out and possibly, um, you know, some, some of the people who are not faithful to him being purged. Mm-hmm. Certainly we've seen that before. Right. Wanda. And, sorry. Oh, and just also like... Oh, yeah, go ahead, Mr. I'm sorry. Just, I think it was like last week or the week before, the Levites, when they crossed through the entire camp. Yes. That wasn't based on whether you thought God was the real God or whether you were just coming along for the ride either. So God's not necessarily picking and choosing. He is just laying down judgment. So it's not yes. necessarily fair to say like, oh, he's purging people either. So it, Yeah, and it could be both. Like we talked about the plague. It doesn't say that the plague only befell those who complained. I mean, there's a great plague and certainly um, could have covered many of the different people. That's a good point. Yes, Wanda. Well, I was just thinking that, you know, when you read all this, you're kind of like, whoa, that was harsh, like you've Mm -hmm. kind of addressed. But also, don't y'all, I don't look at them. Sometimes I think, what do you complain about? But, golly, if I look at my life, I'd jump from, oh, God, you're so good, to what the heck, you know? So I think we're like them. Yeah. Totally like I'd be. Compl- I'd be complaining too. It is. It is. It for you me know? personally, just reading through there and looking through there, you move from the initial. Oh, you have this sort of reaction to it. We're like, well, that's silly. But then, when you read it again, sometimes it's frightening. You think like, oh, oh, yeah. I mean, if you were walking through the desert, you know, how many days? You know. So it, it, it's just, it's a warning. It's a warning. Um, and and God's and. And it's this unique dichotomy. We certainly see God's mercy. You know, Moses complains. God doesn't strike him dead. Um, But we also see Nadab and Abihu, who played fast and loose with God's, you know, laws regarding the priests. And God's like, nope. I'm going to make a very public spectacle of you. And I'm going to burn you. So, you know. Yeah, very interesting. Um, Good stuff. And again, this week we got to the promised land. Hopefully by the end of next week, um, the next lesson, the Israelites will be ready to conquer it. So we're moving right along here. We've made a lot of progress. Thank you guys for hanging in there. And um, it's, I have to admit, there was part of me that was, ex- that was very excited to be done with the law and moving on towards more um, kind of like what happens next in the story. But I tried to just hit on some of the basic stuff that I think makes a good connection with the New Testament or just will kind of help um, spur your interest. And of course, you can always deep dive. I encourage that. If you, fa- if you heard something today you like, jump in there, open the Bible and get 10 layers deeper. So any other questions? Or Thanks again, guys.